Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, hello and welcome to this episode of the Political State Podcast from The Oklahoman. I'm Ben Felder, a journalist for The Oklahoman covering state government, and joining me is The Oklahoman's lead state capital reporter, Carmen Foreman. We are recording this episode on Thursday, March 24th, and normally Thursdays are somewhat of a low-key day at the state capitol, but not necessarily this week, which is deadline week. In order to survive, bills must advance out of their committee of origin this week. And Carmen, lots of bills and votes we could talk about, um, and we'll get into some of those. Probably the, the bill that got the most attention uh, this week was Senate Pro Tem Greg Treat's bill that would allow students to use tax dollars for non-public school expenses, including private school. We've talked about this bill on the podcast before, including the fact that it faced, you know, pretty long odds of even being heard in the House. But what we saw Wednesday night is that it also faced a steep hill in the Senate. Yeah, I mean, I figured it was going to be close in the Senate, but as most people already know by now, it it didn't get out of the Senate. Um, So it's effectively dead for the year. But it was fascinating um, just watching sort of the politics of it and trying to, in real time, uh, trying to get pro tem treat, trying to get the votes that he needed to pass his bill out. Yeah. And what were the votes that we saw last um, night? Yeah. So it was uh, 22 to 24 uh, with 20, yeah, 24 get, voting against the measure. Okay. And we had a couple of lawmakers that weren't present for the vote, um, including at least one that we feel Nathan Dom that probably would have voted in favor of it. Yes. And then there was a Democrat, Senator Kevin Matthews, who likely would have voted against it. So in a way, they would have canceled each other's votes out maybe yeah and it you know it didn't so it didn't come down to just one vote um but i was thinking about the fact that we've talked in previous episodes about how uh jim inhoff's announced retirement has kind of shaken up uh, elections in oklahoma if it did come down to that one vote just one more vote in the favor um and nathan dom is absent because he's campaigning um in uh in washington dc that uh you could you could almost say that inhoff's retirement has also impacted Oklahoma policy, but we didn't get quite to that one vote <laughs> necessary there, but pretty close. And we saw the vote was open for about two hours, right? So it was open for so long because um, yeah. just, and it, you know, in theory, it looked like Greg Treat was building up support for his bill and that he was going to hit the 25 vote threshold needed to get the bill out of the Senate. You know, we saw him get close to, you know, went to 23 and then 24. And then some of those people started flipping their votes back. And so that's how it ended with 22 at nearly midnight on Wednesday. Yeah, well, I kind of want to talk about the winners and losers, so to speak, in, in this. I mean, obviously, those who were in favor of the voucher bill lost and, and those against one, I, I suppose you could say it that way. But, um, you know, one winner I saw on this was, I mean, public schools. And I'm not not because I'm making the case or offering an opinion that this was bad for public schools, although a lot of people, a lot of public school proponents would say that this is bad for public schools. Um, but it's interesting to me because in that building, especially amongst the Republican legislature, um, you hear so much negative talk about public schools and, um, there's a lot of skepticism towards schools and teachers. And even on the floor of the Senate last night, we heard from lawmakers who 
you would have thought they were going to vote for this bill based on the, the negative things they said about public schools. I mean, saying that, you know, we're seeing teachers indoctrinate students, teacher unions are just grabbing up all this money. Um, you know, there's homo, uh, homosexual agendas being put in, in, in students' faces. But at the end of the day, a lot of those lawmakers ended up voting against it. And I think that shows kind of the power that public schools still have. I mean, a lot of these, we talked about this dynamic that a lot of these rural communities, um, if you're a rural lawmaker, the state superintendent is probably somebody that you got to know pretty early on to kind of build some name credibility. You probably know the school board. Uh, you probably advertise in the local football program. I mean, you're pretty, you're really connected to the local schools. And so uh, it wasn't surprising to see some of these lawmakers, um, you know, especially from rural areas, vote, vote against it. And then if you're, if you're a lawmaker from the suburbs, I mean, you probably moved to the suburbs for the schools, but in doing so, you were saying that other schools were not good enough for your kids. So maybe there is a little bit of a belief that the school system is, you know, is flawed. Anyways, I just I just thought it was interesting. And it's it's easy to think that public schools and public school advocates have as, have little power these days. Um, and I'm not comparing the two events, but, you know, when you go back to the teacher walkout, I mean, teachers were able to get some a pay raise with the threat of the walkout. And then this vote yesterday, just at least, I don't know, public school advocates seem to still have a little bit of clout. Yeah, absolutely. I um, when I was just sort of hanging out in the gallery watching as this vote was open for like two hours, um, one house lawmaker from a, a rural district um, basically said, you know, he, he was commenting on the fact that, you know, the pro tem was kind of trying to sway certain senators right before our eyes, you know, trying to flip them. They had voted no, but he needed a couple more votes. And uh, this house lawmaker was basically saying, you know, <laughs> What I would do with this situation is I would text my superintendent, my local superintendent. I would say, what do you want me to do? And then whatever they say, that's what I'm going with. And if anybody comes to try to twist my arm about it, I'm going to show them the text message on my screen and say, this is what the public schools in my district want from me. Yeah. I mean, there's there's many of lawmakers who are critical of superintendents, a lot of conservative think tanks that are critical of superintendents. But superintendents hold a lot of power in their towns. I mean, they really do. Um, and I think that's an interesting, uh, you know, anecdote that you share from from last night. Um, it's easy to say that Greg Treat lost. I mean, his bill, it was his bill and he lost, although I don't know that it was a an embarrassment for him. Right. I mean, I think he was able to kind of say, hey, I'm advocating for an issue I believe in. And most of his colleagues, at least on the in the Republican caucus who voted against it, said that they appreciated what he was trying to do. So I don't, yeah. I don't know that I would call this a huge embarrassment for, or for Treat. No, absolutely. And I kind of, I think it's viewed more as like a valiant effort from supporters of his in this mm -hmm. bill and everybody, uh, I mean, you know, like we saw Ryan Walters, we saw Governor Stitt, um, we saw all these groups coming out and just praising Greg Treat, even though the bill failed. And, and the thing is, and we've talked about this before, it's hard to pass major reforms in government in one year. And mm -hmm. you know what, Treat's got a couple more years up here. He doesn't have another election to face. So he doesn't have to deal with the political pressures that can come from that. Although, you know, as the pro tem in a fairly Republican district, he'd be pretty safe regardless. But, um, you know, he can come back and try again next year. And if and we'll probably get to this, if not later this session through some other means. Um, but, you know, I would expect this is not the last we've talked about this school choice measure um, or, you know, taxpayer dollars following the student. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as you said, I mean, there are some legislative jujitsu moves that they can kind of perform later on. And we'll just kind of save that for down the road when we get to it, because um, then obviously we'll have lots to talk about it if it reappears. I, 
was this an embarrassment for the governor? I mean, he advocated for this heavily in his state of the state. He's been promoting it heavily, um, you know, online and, and to local media. Um, I mean, you know, he's not the author of the bill, but he's, you know, he pretty much attached himself to it pretty, pretty closely. He did. I don't know that I would say it's an embarrassment for the governor. Maybe it was something he wanted to tout on the campaign trail and now he can't, but I think he has um, probably plenty of other topics that he can turn to in an election year and say, look at me, I cut taxes or look at me, I cut taxes two years in a row um, Mm -hmm. or any number of other things that he can turn to. Um, so I don't necessarily see it as, a, as an embarrassment for the governor. I know some people on the public school side of things and maybe Joy Hoffmeister sees it as like in your face, take this governor's did, mm-hmm. but uh, I don't necessarily see it that way. Well, is this an issue you think he'll he'll bring up on the campaign trail? I mean, you would think that he would he would tell voters, hey, I tried this year, reelect me. I'm going to try again next year. But I mean, if it didn't pass the Senate, it wasn't even going to get a hearing in the House. Uh, and we've talked about this before, a lot of these rural communities are against this. I mean, he had a lot of support in the rural communities when he won election the first time. And I don't think this issue is enough to, I mean, I can envision a lot of Republicans saying, okay, I don't agree with you on this governor, but I'm going to vote for you. It's not enough to make me vote for the other person, which in this case is likely to be Joy Hoffmeister, the state superintendent. But um, I imagine she's going to try to make this a campaign issue saying, hey, you, if you weren't in favor of this voucher bill, uh, don't reelect the guy that's been promoting it. Yeah, uh, I, I think it's it's complicated, right? Because all those rural areas that really supported Stitt his first time around and those same areas that he needs to win re-election, um, I think we saw in the Republican senators that voted against the bill last night or on Wednesday, um, those are the rural areas that Stitt needs to support him still. And it's hard to say that he, if he would still have as strong of support, if he was able to pass, you know, this major school choice reform. Yeah, but a win for for Hoffmeister, a state superintendent, maybe a small one, maybe from a campaign perspective. I mean, definitely gives her, uh, you know, a, another opportunity to speak up and and to get her kind of response on an issue of which she was strongly against. This said that it would be a a public school killer. Yeah, I think I would say it's probably a win for Hoffmeister. Just uh, it's another chance to show her differences between her uh, the difference between her and governor stitt um and this is a strong issue and you know like we've talked about before she's likely to go into campaign season and try to um pitch herself as the education candidate as the one who cares about public education in oklahoma yeah well we saw the last democratic candidate four years ago try to build himself up as the education candidate it didn't work, but the Democrats, or at least Hoffmeister, is going to double down on that strategy and, and try it again. Um, maybe the other loser is uh, advertising you know, the industry here, because if, if this bill did pass the Senate, went to the House, we probably were likely to see some more ads targeting uh, House members to try to get them to, uh, to to change their minds on approving this voucher bill. But uh, we'll see. Like we said, it, there's nothing's ever dead in that building. Um, yeah. Even when, when it appears that it is. And I um, thought of one, one other winner. Um, yeah. I know that <laughs> the, I guess the Oklahoman got some ad revenue from all those attack ads and then all the local TV stations, certainly. And well, the TV I'm, stations uh, in Atoka, they benefited. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. But now now that if the issue has gone away, then we don't there's no more runway for that for those, for those ads to come back. But maybe they'll, they'll find something else. Um, so that was probably the bill that got the most attention. But there are a few others that also were kind of of note. Um, 
you know, including advance today, I'm curious, what were some of the other kind of, you know, important pieces of legislation that you saw advance this deadline week? Um, yeah, so once that advanced, uh, there's a very, um, oh man, I could take probably hours to explain this, so I won't. There's a very complicated law enforcement consolidation bill that advanced out of the Senate today, and basically it's still total work in progress, um, but I think that'll be a big talking point the rest of session. Um, we saw once again that the House advanced uh, bipartisan data privacy legislation from representatives Colin Walkie and Josh West. Um, my understanding is that the state chamber is still not a fan of it. Um, but it, you know, just like last year, it goes to the Senate. Maybe the Senate will take it up, maybe not. We saw a bunch of medical marijuana reforms go through the House. Um, <laughs> Anti-abortion bills, we've talked about those before. Um, we saw more of those advance. Um, yeah, that's 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 kind of the highlights I can think of off the top of my head. I know I'm missing things though. Yeah. And if and you wanted to talk about things that died, woof, I, I have a I've scattered notes all over my desk, have post-its where I've just written on scraps of paper, like, oh, this died, oh, this died. Okay, we'll talk about the death of bills here in a moment. And voting's still going on. Uh, listeners can probably hear the bells chiming in the background, which indicates indicates votes. Um, there was the uh, a, a transgender athletic or athlete bill that passed today. The interesting part about this, one, it's it's part of a rise in a similar legislation we've seen across the country that would ban uh, transgender women from competing in high school sports. Uh, this bill did not get a hearing on the Senate last year. Uh, Pro Tem Treat said that it wasn't something that he saw addressing any kind of problem, or at least he didn't see there was a problem that needed this, this solution. Um, but today we saw it advance with his vote, um, and, I, and I, I think it speaks to how this this culture war issue continues to just you know kind of grow in intensity. I guess I don't know another better way to put it, but it, that advanced today, right? Yeah, it did advance, and now it's before the governor. Um, honestly, even when this podcast airs, maybe the governor will have made a decision. Who knows? Uh, but yeah, uh, it, it's interesting to me that just this week we saw two other Republican governors veto a similar bill. Um, that's the Republican governors in Indiana and Utah. And I saw, I know I saw the governor of Utah's letter, his like four page veto letter was just like going around the internet left and right. Um, one, I've never seen a governor write that much in a veto message. It was very thorough in explaining his thoughts. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what Governor Stitt does. Um, my hunch would be that he signs the bill. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I, it'd also be interesting to see last year we saw the NCAA kind of make a veiled threat that they might pull some events from states that pass legislation like this. Um, I haven't yet seen that. I, I know we maybe have some colleagues in sports that are kind of keeping their, their ears open for that one. Um, uh, but yeah, that, that bill moves to the governor. And so now we'll just kind of have to wait and see what Stitt does. Okay, so bills that died, what are some of the big ones that are not advancing? Okay, so sports betting is is dead. Sounded like um, it wasn't. It didn't really have a shot in the Senate. Um, I know that Pro Tem Greg Treat previously said um, that he kind of wanted to use the idea of allowing casinos and tribes to do sports betting as a bargaining chip to get more in the compacts for the state. Um, and I don't, uh, I don't. I'm not so sure this legislation did that. And then there's the whole complicated issue of. Well, is Governor Stitt going to sign on anything having to do with the tribes or improving mm -hmm. the tribes' revenues? Um, so that that did not get heard by deadline. There was a bill that Tesla was really up in arms about, um, basically would have 
could have prevented Tesla from basically having their maintenance facilities and sort of showrooms in Oklahoma. It was sort of a traditional type, uh, a bill that tried to, I don't know, shore up traditional car dealerships in a way. Um, so that's a couple ones. There was a really um, controversial bill that supporters of Julius Jones were very up in arms about because it would have reformed the pardon and parole board. And um, essentially, Julius Jones supporters said that it was, you know, retaliation for Governor Stitt commuting uh, Jones's sentence, or maybe I should say granting him clemency. Um, because it basically would have prevented the pardon and parole board from considering claims of innocence. And basically, in a way, it was kind of telling the parole board, hey, you stay in your lane and the courts will stay in theirs and they will determine questions of guilt or innocence. And you, you over there, pardon and parole board, you will not. So that's just a couple off the top of my head. I'm sure there are more, yeah. plenty more that died. Yeah, and as you say, some things can kind of kind of come back, especially if they go through the budget process. Um, that's one where where things can kind of stick their head up. But the the Tesla one is interesting because I don't know, but it would be interesting. Like five or ten years ago, that might have been something that would have gotten a lot more attention this year. I mean, it's you know you, you say it's kind of a way to shore up the traditional car dealerships, but also a very pro oil and gas kind of logic. But uh, this is a state right now that's embracing electric cars with the uh, the canoe facility coming, and that's been a big deal for the governor. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the governor can, wants to continue pursuing, pursuing that industry and uh, manufacturers in that industry. So, I mean, I, frankly, I didn't see him signing the bill, but now it's now it's not a, a question anymore. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think I think the oil and gas industry is just as powerful as it's ever been. Um, but I, I think this kind of renewable energy uh is it's not a conversation stopper like it maybe once was. Um, it's, it's, I mean, it, and that's been the case for several years. I mean, we've seen the growth of wind and, and now electric vehicles. Um, so another thing I want to ask you about, Carmen, is on Wednesday, the Oklahoma Supreme Court heard oral arguments in a case challenging the timing of the special election to fill U.S. Senate seat, the U.S. Senate seat being vacated by Jim Inhofe. Um, so you covered this hearing yesterday, and then we got some more news about it today. What, what was the case about yesterday and then what do we hear today? Yeah, so the case is essentially a, a lawyer from Enid. He argues that um, Governor Stitt basically prematurely set a special election to fill Inhofe's seat this year and that the U.S. Constitution, the 17th Amendment, says that he can't do that until Inhofe formally steps down, which he doesn't plan to do until January 3rd of next year. So uh, he, this lawyer, Stephen Jones, um, pretty prominent attorney in Enid, he filed a lawsuit. Um, he challenged the state election board basically and said, hey, please, you need to stop the election. And he was asking the Supreme Court, Oklahoma Supreme Court, to stop the election and prevent candidate filing from occurring next month. Well, so then they have oral arguments for like an hour on Wednesday. And then the Supreme Court comes back on Thursday and in like a one sentence statement basically says, oh, we punt on this. We don't think we have jurisdiction. So somebody else take it. And I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see Stephen Jones take the question to federal court. I doubt he will be more successful there, but, uh, you know, I've, I've been wrong before. Yeah, yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see how that process goes as well. I think you're kind of waiting for a media availability with Treat. I see a bunch of people with cameras going behind you. So maybe that's going to be happening next door. I'm not sure. So you might need to jump off here pretty soon. But I have about 12 minutes. 
Okay. Well, we won't take the whole 12 minutes here. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, the end of a deadline week, um, you know, things will kind of slow down a little bit before we get closer to the next deadline. Um, you're, you're off all next week, right? Yes, I am okay. off all next week. I, I'm happy was, to take a break. <laughs> yeah, I was off last week. I took off during a busy time. You're going to, you're wisely taking off. Wise, kindly to your colleagues, taking off during a time will we'll slow down <laughs> a little bit. Uh, anything fun that you're doing? Um, yeah, I'm doing like a, a fellowship thing down in Austin. Um, it's oh, like that's right. It's a fellowship trip. Yeah, that's right. Capital reporters basically across the country. So in theory, I will come back a more seasoned and better reporter. But um, I think I will also come back having had some pretty good Austin margaritas. Mm. Yeah. I don't know. A, a great town to visit. And that fellowship sounds really cool. Is there anything in particular that, that you're, I mean, I'm glad I asked you because I forgot about that. I knew you were taking off, but I forgot it was for the fellowship. Anything in particular that you're kind of interested in and really kind of digging into? I, uh, that's a great question. And I think we're going to cover all things, you know, covering policy, covering politics, covering elections. And, um, and misinformation, I guess I, I, you know, we're in this world now where there's just so much misinformation that it seems, uh, it seems unmanageable. And how do reporters really tackle that in the day to day? And what's the appropriate way to tackle misinformation? I mean, I know I look at Twitter entirely too much. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just like one wrong thing after another. But you know, I could spend 24 hours a day all day every day, correcting misinformation on Twitter and I still wouldn't get anywhere. And so it's yeah. just like, how do you do that in a way that it gets people to pay attention, gets people to actually care about, I don't know, facts again. Um, so hopefully I come back with some insight on that and then just, you know, maybe a little more uh, tips on we're heading into election season. And I've covered elections before and, um, but this will be, this will be an interesting one, especially with all the dark money out there and, yeah. And, you know, I just, any chance you can get to shine a little more sunlight on uh, how elections are working and who's trying to influence who, I, I'm a big fan of that. So, yeah, a misinformation one, we could probably do a whole podcast on that. I think that'll be interesting to hear what you, you kind of come back with that because it's obviously been, it's something that I feel like, I mean, I you know, I mean, you can make the argument that misinformation has been involved in politics since the dawn of politics, but it just seems you're right, we're kind of in this different era and it seems like the misinformation really have crept into the Capitol building in a way that maybe we haven't seen it in years past. Um, and, and and part of that is just, I think the, as the parties become kind of more extreme and you just, you just have people, you have lawmakers that just come from very, even more different perspectives and different worldviews and they're getting their information from totally different places. And so, um, yeah, it's, it, it's, uh, it's not just seeping into everything we do. It's just, you know, it's hitting us in the face a lot of times when we're trying, trying to do our work. So, well, you have a great uh, time down in Austin. Um, and uh, we'll try to keep things afloat for you while you're gone. So you're not really taking off. You're still working since this is, you know, kind of for your work. So, but hopefully you get some, some downtime. Yeah. Are you going to, uh, you going to fill in my podcast spot while I'm gone? I don't know what we'll do next week. And we'll bring in one of the young guns that have been kind of helping us at the Capitol. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we'll try to do an episode that we've been off for a couple of weeks. I was off last week. I wasn't doing a fellowship just on vacation, but um, yeah, maybe we'll try to keep it, uh, keep it going for next week as well. So, well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the political state podcast, which you can find on your favorite podcast app. You can also find the video version of this on the Oklahoma's YouTube channel with Carmen Foreman. I'm Ben Felder. Thanks for listening and watching. We'll be back with you next week. Thank you.